Welcome to Healthy by Choice, a broadcast designed to bring powerful healing into your life today. Gaining and maintaining optimum health is possible at any age. That's what thousands are learning at CHIP, the complete health improvement program offered across the country and around the world. You can learn more at chiphealth.com. But now, get ready to enjoy some proven results and priceless benefits. I'm your Healthy by Choice host, Charles Mills. Back in 1977, today's guest directed a series of clinical research studies proving for the very first time that comprehensive lifestyle changes could not only stop the progression of coronary artery disease, but could actually reverse it. While many others have followed his lead, including Drs. Caldwell Esselstyn, John McDougall, Kay Lance Gould, to say nothing of Dr. T. Colin Campbell and our very own Dr. Hans Deal, Dean Ornish was the first. And for that, we in the health promotion world owe him a deep debt of gratitude. His findings continue to shock the medical establishment and save a lot of lives, including those with prostate cancer. I've got Dr. Ornish on the line with us today, and I'm looking forward to talking with him about the latest discoveries that can make us all healthier and happier. Dean Michael Ornish is a physician and president and founder of the nonprofit Preventive Medicine Research Institute in Sausalito, California, as well as clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Ornish, welcome to Healthy by Choice. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Now, 1977, it was a very different world when it comes to health education. Why were you searching for answers in areas where no one else was searching? And what made you stick your head up above the herd and say, hey, I think I'm onto something here? Well, I got interested in doing this work in part because uh, I was on Michael DeBakey's surgical service, the uh-huh. pioneering heart surgeon, and uh, learning how to do bypass surgery as a medical student. And, you know, we cut people open, we bypassed their clogged arteries, he'd often tell them they were cured, and... More often than not, they would go home and do all the things that had caused the problem in the first place. You know, eat junk food, not manage stress, not exercise, smoke cigarettes, and so on. And often their bypasses would clog up, and so we'd cut them open again, sometimes more than once. And so for me, bypass surgery became a metaphor of an incomplete approach, that we were literally bypassing the problem without also addressing the underlying cause. And one of the nice things about being a medical student is you'll try things that you wouldn't try if you knew better. <laughs> so I, uh, much to my parents' dismay, I decided to take a year off from my, between my second and third years of medical school to begin what was the first of a series of a lifetime of studies. Uh, this was in 1977, uh, almost 40 years ago. Yes. And so um, I took 10 patients, put them in a hotel for a month, and they got better, and they not only felt better, but they were better in ways that uh, we could measure. The blood flow to their heart improved, and uh, it was the first time it had been shown that you could actually not only help prevent, but even reverse the progression of people with severe heart disease. It was also my first experience of when you're doing something that doesn't fit within the conventional guidelines, it's not always met with universal uh, acceptance, and so that we've got a lot of flack and criticism from people who really just said, oh, that's impossible, it can't yes, be. Yes. So I went back to school, finished my MD, then did a randomized trial, also a month long, showing that the heart disease improved, published that in the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, went on to Boston to Mass General to do my uh, medical residency and internship, and to uh, Harvard for my fellowship, and then went to uh, San Francisco in 1984 and began the third most definitive study called the Lifestyle Heart Trial, where we used quantitative arteriography and cardiac PET scans to show that heart disease was reversible. 
But it always seemed odd to me that from the beginning, uh, there was evidence in dogs and cats and pigs and rabbits and monkeys that you could cause them to get heart disease if you force them to smoke or eat uh, an unhealthy diet or put them under emotional stress and so on. And you could reverse it by changing those same factors. I thought, well, why should people be any different? It turned out that they weren't, but at the time that was thought impossible. You know, I got to ask you this, Dr. Ornish, how in the world do you find 10 people who were willing for a medical student to take them and put them in a motel room and feed them a very different diet than they're used to? How'd you do that? Well, especially in Texas, you know, where uh, <laughs> yes. this was a, a big de- departure from the way that they were used to eating. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. These were people who had really bad heart disease but were not considered operable candidates, which... Back in Houston, the days of Michael DeBakey and Denton Cooley and people like that, you had to be pretty far gone to not be considered an operative candidate. So these were especially sick people who had diffuse disease that, in effect, there was nothing really to bypass. So I guess they felt like, you know, they really had nothing other than than medication, so why not give this a try? And then one of the interesting things that we found initially then, and we've since found in, in subsequent studies, is how dynamic these underlying biological mechanisms are, how quickly people begin to feel better. And so most people began to find that their chest pain was significantly better and oftentimes went away completely within just a few days to a few weeks. And so that makes it much more self-reinforcing when people say, oh, when I do this, I feel good, and when I do that, I don't feel so good. So maybe I'll do more of this and less of that and, and uh, to continue that, and that's what happened. So when these 10 people left that motel room after that trial... They were different people. They felt different, and you were able to look inside and see that they were actually different? Yes, they not only felt better, but in most cases they were better in ways we could actually measure. So eight of the ten people showed improvement in their blood flow to the heart. We used what was then a new test called exercise thallium scans. Uh, It's now a fairly standard test in most hospitals, which measures not only how people feel, but also shows how much blood the heart is getting. And in eight of ten cases, they showed an improved blood flow to the heart, and you know, the, some of the cardiologists said, oh, the test must be wrong. And I said, well, you did the test, you know. <laughs> These are the same tests that we use to send people to surgery every day. Why are, why are they suddenly uh, wrong, you know? And so, again, when you're doing something that challenges the conventional wisdom, it's in, it can often be viewed as uh, threatening the order that that system provides. Now, I've got to ask you this also. That was 1977. This is now. Is, is there a difference? If you were to take 10 people and put them in a motel room and, and, and feed them this good food and they came out and they were changed, would the medical establishment still raise eyebrows at you? Or would you still be sort of ostracized and, and, and marginalized for what you're doing? Or would this now be something that's accepted? Oh, no, it's become mainstream. That's part of the value of science. It's why I've spent so much of my time doing good science, because I think science is a very powerful tool for helping people sort out what's true and what isn't and for whom and under what circumstances. And so the weight of evidence over time using, I mean, we've been using these very high-tech, expensive, state-of-the-art scientific measures of the degree of heart disease, like quantitative coronary arteriography and cardiac positron emission tomography or PET scans, exercise rate of nuclide ventriculography, uh, spec thallium scans, and so on to prove how powerful these very simple and low-tech and low-cost interventions can be. And we've published our findings, you know, as randomized trials in the major top-tier peer-reviewed medical journals, you know, the Journal of the American Medical Association, the Lancet, the New England Journal of Medicine, the American Journal of Cardiology, uh, Circulation, and so on. And so what was really a radical idea at the time has now become mainstream. And particularly now that Medicare is covering our program, we've been training sites around the country, and we're really trying to create a new 
paradigm of healthcare that's focused on lifestyle as treatment, uh, not simply as prevention. Mm-hmm. There's a, an emerging field called lifestyle medicine that many of us have gotten involved in, which is the idea of lifestyle as treatment. And I think there's a convergence of forces that it's really making this the right idea at the right time. On the one hand, the limitations of the drugs and surgery have become increasingly well-documented in the leading peer-reviewed journals. Uh, a meta-analysis of eight randomized trials of angioplasties and stents published in JAMA Internal Medicine, what used to be called the Archives of Internal Medicine, mm-hmm. found in all of them that they don't work unless you're in the middle of having a heart attack uh, or unstable, which most people aren't. They don't prevent heart attacks. They don't prolong life. They don't even reduce angina. And yet we spent, and the same is true of the randomized trials of bypass surgery, unless you have left main disease and poor left ventricular function. In other words, about 1% or 2% of the most severe people who have heart disease. They don't work either. And we spent you know, almost $80 billion last year on these two operations that are, in effect, dangerous, invasive, expensive, and largely ineffective. Mm-hmm. Uh, we find that to be true for treatments of prostate cancer. One out of 49 men who has uh, early-stage prostate cancer who's treated with surgery or radiation, only one out of 49 benefits from the treatment. The other 48 tend to become either impotent or incontinent or both. So we take guys who are often in the prime of their life, scare them because they're told that their PSA is rising, they get a biopsy, they say, oh, you've got early prostate cancer, we better cut it out or radiate it before it spreads. But most people don't realize that only one out of 49 people is likely to benefit. The other 48 often end up in diapers. They can't have sex. In other words, they're maimed in the most personal ways for no benefit, a huge economic cost. And we can identify pretty, pretty clearly now who that one out of 49 men is who needs to be treated, working with Dr. Peter Carroll at UCSF, who's one of the busiest surgeons, but also has the largest series of men who are doing what was called uh, watchful waiting, now called active surveillance. And you find similar data with treatments of type 2 diabetes, that getting your blood sugar down with drugs doesn't necessarily prevent the horrible complications of diabetes, but getting it down with lifestyle does at a fraction of the cost, and the only side effects are good ones. And already a third of Americans are diabetic or pre-diabetic, and uh, it will be half of Americans in the next few years at a cost estimated by United Healthcare of over $3 trillion, clearly not sustainable. So at the same time that the power of these simple lifestyle changes has become clearer, the limitations of these high-tech drugs and surgery has also become clear. And the third force that's converging to make this the right idea at the right time is that the uh, incentives are getting turned on their ear by Obamacare, by the Affordable Care Act. So before, in a fee-for-service environment, the more operations and cents you do, the more money you make. Under Obamacare, as we move towards accountable care organizations and so on, it's here's X amount of dollars to take care of Mr. Jones or Ms. Smith. You, the doctor, the hospital gets to keep what's left over. And so the incentives are to do fewer procedures, and yet if the patient ends up in the hospital, that comes out of the pot of money that the doctor or the hospital is given. So less expensive, more effective interventions like what we're doing and uh, these lifestyle interventions are becoming more, more valuable. And it turns out that three-quarters of the $2.8 trillion that we spend on health care in this country, which is largely sick care, are for chronic diseases that can be largely prevented, even reversed, simply by changing lifestyles. You mentioned something important, and I want you to use this word again for us. You said that a lot of people who go in for bypass surgery or use these interventions that the modern medicine provides, they come out of the hospital thinking that they are fixed. And this is a, this is a mindset that I, I really wish our listeners could get their mind around. 
They're not fixed, I hear you saying. They are simply saved for another day, and what they do on that another day makes all the difference. Am I on the right track here? Well, that's what people used to be told by their doctors, but we now know that's not the case. First of all, that unless they were unstable in the middle of having a heart attack, the bypass or angioplasty or stents really doesn't do much anyway. And second, even in in those people who were unstable and, and got a new lease on life from having those procedures... It's a little like mopping up the floor around the sink that's overflowing without also turning off the faucet. Yes, it's just yeah. the problem comes back again if you don't treat the cause of it. You know, it's like the same time when people are put on cholesterol-lowering drugs like Lipitor, and the patient says, how long do I have to take these drugs? And the doctor says, forever. It's like, well, how long do I have to keep mopping up the floor? And the doctor they say, well, it's forever. It's like, well, why don't we just turn off the faucet? <laughs> and the faucet, to a large degree, are the lifestyle choices that we make each day, yeah. what we eat, how we respond to stress how much exercise we get, whether or not we smoke cigarettes, and perhaps most important, how much love and intimacy we have in our lives and community. And when we make different choices, our bodies have a remarkable capacity to begin healing and much more quickly than we had once realized. These biological mechanisms are much more dynamic than people had once thought. You know, a lot of the problem we have with heart disease and any kind of disease is fear, of course. People are afraid of pain. They're afraid of what's going on in their bodies. And when they are afraid and they have angina and they're told, you know, have 98% blockage, 96% blockage, you're on your way out here, they're afraid, they want to take whatever they can see and use and whatever the medical profession throws at them. When is it necessary to actually go to the doctor and say, help me, save me, or when can they change their diet, their lifestyle, love more? Can they do that with 98% blockage? Can they do that with angina? Well, you know, what's interesting is that the degree of blockage is not really uh, a good predictor of the risk of having a heart attack. In some ways, the 30 or 40% blocked arteries may be more dangerous than the 95% blocked arteries because by the time an artery is 95% clogged, it's generally stable, it's calcified, you have new blood vessels called collaterals that grow around the blocked arteries, and so it may not be as dangerous as the 40% blockages, which are often fresh and and unstable. But if their clinical condition is unstable, if their blood pressure is falling while they exercise, if they have chest pain or angina at rest or that wakes them up from sleep, or the pattern of angina is getting progressively worse over time, then those are the people who may benefit from from having an intervention like an angioplasty or stent. Mm -hmm. But most people who get those procedures are not unstable. And for them, you know, always the standard ask your doctor, and, and I can't obviously give anybody a recommendation about whether or not they should have surgery or angioplasty that I've never seen or examined. But in general, if a person's stable, they can benefit from making lifestyle choices, either in addition to or instead of more conventional practices, and that's something they need to work out with their doctors. And you're saying that they should be able to see improvement not within years or months, but possibly within days and weeks? That's often the case. Is people wow. We found in our earlier studies, and, and which was replicated in our later ones, that there was a greater than 90% reduction in the frequency of angina in the first three or four weeks. So that's not only a very powerful motivator for people, but also an indication that they're they're getting better. Now, angina can get better for placebo reasons that don't affect the underlying disease process, but we measure the underlying disease process. And so we know this isn't just a placebo response, it's a biological response. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I want to talk more with Dr. Dean Ornish about reversing diseases, and this time, let's talk prostate. Prostate cancer, a scary cancer a lot of men face, but Dr. Ornish says there is hope, so stay right where you are. 
I've lost a thousand pounds. I like to tell people I always find them again too. Uh, I've struggled throughout my life with my weight. I've always been heavy. It's important to me that you know I stick around to see my grandchildren live a healthy life and life expectancy. And I've lived a very long time very luckily. You know, I, I'm one of the typical examples of what you call uh, living by luck, not by choice. Through the CHIP program, I have learned how to be a smarter shopper. I spend time at the grocery store reading labels and comparing products as to which things are my healthiest choices. I learned how well nutrition can reverse many of the diseases that we have in our country. One of my blood pressure medicines uh, reduced by 50%. I expect uh, when I go back to the doctor, there will be even a further reduction. I've lost 47 pounds since I started. You know, I lost a lesser amount of weight during the first 40 days, but I've continued on since the TIP program. But during the program itself, my biggest uh, drop was in my cholesterol level. My cholesterol level was 205 before, it was 154 after. My triglycerides went down, my blood pressure stayed the same, uh, all my other factors went down. I think it's honestly helped our relationship. Yeah. And it's more exciting to when we're walking around the track, we're talking and we're asking about our day, whereas we would have been sitting on the couch and like eating and watching Netflix or watching a movie together. So it's definitely, I think, brought our relationship stronger and, and in a more healthy way in numerous, I think, avenues. The biggest thing with Chip is that it's, it's a lifestyle that you can sustain because it's something you don't have to measure, you just do. We're not waiting till we're 60 and getting a stint in our heart, being diagnosed with some kind of high blood pressure or high cholesterol. We're trying to do this as a preventative thing, so we're choosing to be healthy, not waiting for a prescription. It's a lifestyle, it's not a diet. It's a way of living to be healthy, happy, and productive. Ready to make some changes in your life? Visit chiphealth.com. It's never too late to begin living the healthy life. chiphealth.com. Welcome back to the program. I'm your host, Charles Mills. We're here with Dr. Dean Ornish. His website is ornish.com. He was telling me before the program that there's a lot of stuff there, free information, resources that you need. Uh, let me ask you, Dr. Ornish, why did you put the website up there? What are you hoping to accomplish with it? I created our website, which you can find at, at uh, ornish.com, O-R-N-I-S-H.com. Uh-huh. It has everything on there is free. It's, you know, having seen what a powerful difference these lifestyle changes can make. I wanted to make it easier for people to incorporate them into their daily life without any cost to them. Yes. And so there are recipes, menus, guided meditations that my wife Ann has done, complete reprints of all the journal articles that we've been talking about, plus several more video testimonials and so on. There's also a community of people at what's called Feel the Love for people who want to make these changes. One of the things that we've learned is that doing it with a community of other people who are making it not only makes it easier to, to stay on the diet and so on, but more important than that, the community itself is healing. Yes. You know, study after study has shown that people who are lonely and depressed and isolated are three to ten times more likely to get sick and die prematurely mm-hmm. than those who have a sense of love and connection and community. And so, you know, when people think of my work, they often focus on the diet. And, of course, diet's important, but it's only one of the four components of our program. Mm-hmm. And the love and intimacy and sense of community is perhaps the most powerful, even, even more powerful than the diet. I don't know anything that has such a major effect on our lives that can affect mortality to that degree and, and sense of well-being. And so the Feel the Love community is a web-based community of people who support and nurture each other as well as help each other make and maintain these changes. All right, fantastic. That's Ornish.com, O R. 
N-I-S-H.com. Okay, let's talk prostate cancer. You have made it very clear in your research that uh, heart disease has met its match in most cases. Let's talk prostate. Are we finding that there is hope for those with this disease? Yeah, we did a randomized trial 10 years ago with Dr. Uh, Peter Carroll, who's the chair of urology here at UCSF, where I'm a professor, uh-huh. and the late Dr. Bill Fair, who at the time was the chair of urology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. And we found that these same lifestyle changes that can reverse heart disease may slow, stop, and even reverse the progression of men with early-stage prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. Following that, we then did studies to say, what are the mechanisms that may help to explain this finding? And we found that in just three months of following our program, that over 500 genes were changed, and in fact, upregulating or turning on the genes that prevent disease and downregulating or turning off the genes that promote prostate, breast, colon cancer, diabetes, oxidative stress, heart disease, and other conditions. And so, again, it's another illustration of how dynamic these mechanisms are. So often people would say things like, oh, I've got bad genes, you know, there's nothing I can do about it, when in fact, there is a lot you can do about it. You can change hundreds of them, the expression of them, in only three months. And just a few months ago, we published the first study showing that we can begin to reverse aging at a cellular level using the same lifestyle choices that we found could reverse heart disease and prostate cancer and so on. And the more closely people followed our program, the more they improved. We found that we could lengthen telomeres, the ends of our chromosomes that control how long we live. It's the only intervention that's been shown to do that, including drugs. And we did this study in collaboration with Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, who was awarded the Nobel Prize a little over four years ago for discovering telomerase, the enzyme that repairs and lengthens telomeres. So the more we look, the more mechanisms that we find to explain why these simple changes in diet and lifestyle can make such a powerful difference, how quickly they can occur, and how powerful they can be. You know, Dr. Arnish, i got to ask you this. Knowing I was going to interview you, uh, the other day I went downtown and they were having one of these portable heart screening things from our local big hospital, and I went in to see what they had to say. And their message was not like yours. Their, their message did not include all this cool stuff you're talking to us about. Their message was, you know, you, you, you need to eat a little bit better, you need to cut back on this thing and whatnot. They were not coming at it aggressively from a nutrition stand, from an exercise stand, from any kind of angle that you're coming at right now in your research and on your website. Why is that? Well, things are changing. You know, Medicare is now covering my program after 16 years of review. That's a really good thing because part of what I've learned is that if it's not reimbursable, it's not really sustainable. It's very hard to create a new paradigm of healthcare that isn't covered by Medicare and other insurance companies. And And most of the other insurance companies, WellPoint recently announced that they're not only covering but encouraging their members to to go through the program. Most other insurance companies follow Medicare's lead. Mm -hmm. And so we're really creating a new paradigm of healthcare that's that's reimbursable and sustainable. We've already trained dozens of hospitals around the country, including uh, Beth Israel Medical Center in New York City. We just trained uh, the UCLA Medical Center. They'll be opening our program next month. The Cleveland Clinic, you know, most of the major, most well-respected institutions are now being trained in our program because it's an opportunity for them to practice the kind of medicine that they know is really most effective. And for the physicians, it's a way for them to kind of reclaim why we went into medicine in the first place, you know, not to be a technician or an algorithm, but to really be a healer. And so it provides the time and the support. The physician is quarterback, and he or she works with a team that includes a dietitian, a yoga teacher, an exercise physiologist, a psychologist, a nurse, all working together, and Medicare will pay for 72 hours of training. 
uh, which we divide into 18 four-hour sessions. So people generally come from 5 to 9 p.m. after work or during the day if they don't work. They get an hour of supervised exercise, an hour of stress management, which is essentially yoga and meditation, an hour of a support group, which is really the, the secret sauce that, that makes us get such high levels of adherence, and a group meal with a lecture, usually by a dietitian. And after they finish their 72 hours, they continue to meet, which is why we're getting 85 to 90% adherence to our program after a year. The insurance companies are finding that it's not only medically effective, it's cost-effective. Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield found that they cut their overall healthcare costs by half in the first year. And when they looked at the subset of patients that they had spent the most money on in the preceding year, the ones they spent more than $25,000 on, they cut their costs in the first year by 400%. So we have this big debate going on in Washington now between many Democrats who say, let's just raise taxes, let the deficit go up. Many Republicans saying, let's just try to dismantle Medicare. And we say, wait a minute, there's a third alternative here. Mm -hmm. If we can turn off that faucet around the sink that's overflowing, in other words, if we can teach people how to change their lifestyle in healthier ways, then we can make better care available to more people at much lower cost without these painful choices. And the only side effects are good ones. Let's get practical here in the last couple of minutes we have on the show. There is someone listening, let's say, Dr. Ornish, who has been told that there is atherosclerosis is happening. There is some angina. There is some real problems in that life. And that person wants to go to Ornish.com. But what can he or she do right now, this moment? I mean, after the program is over, they turn the radio off, they walk to their kitchen or their dining room or out in their yard and they do something. What should they start doing right now that can help reverse this disease, whether it's heart disease or prostate cancer, whether it's any kind of these things, obesity, diabetes, what can they take from the Ornish program and apply to their life right now that will help them? Well, the best thing would be to go to the Ornish.com site move towards eating a plant-based diet, love more, move more, and manage stress more effectively, they're going to not only feel better, but they're going to be uh, more likely to, if they have underlying heart disease, and again, it's not just heart disease. You know, the idea is that the more you change, the more you improve, both in how you feel and in the underlying disease process. So how much you change and how quickly is really up to you, but don't feel like it's all or nothing. So start where you are. The more you begin to make changes, the better you feel. The better you feel, you get into a virtuous cycle of wanting to do more because it's like, oh, when I do this, I feel good. When I do that, I don't feel so good. So maybe I'll do more of this and less of that. And then it comes out of your own experience, not because some doctor or some authority told you, but you can literally connect the dots between what you do and how you feel. 1977, 2027, what's going to be the difference in the way we treat disease? Well, I think we're going to find that lifestyle is not just a a corollary or an adjunct, but it's going to be the mainstay of treating not only heart disease, but, but most chronic diseases. And you know what's interesting is that it's already happening. I mean, I never thought this would happen, but there was a consensus statement that was in the Annals of Internal Medicine uh, a year and a half ago that said that life is from the American College of Physicians, the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, and so on. What do they say? Lifestyle changes in medical therapy should be the mainstay for most patients with stable heart disease, focusing on eliminating all unhealthy behaviors. So we don't even have to wait till then to see it. It's already happening. All right, fantastic. Ornish.com, O-R-N-I-S-H.com is the website. And, of course, if you need some help as well, there's always chiphealth.com. You can find information resources at both of these sites to move you along from where you are to where you want to be. I recommend that you go visit these sites immediately, sooner, not later. 
Dr. Dean Ornish, thank you so much for being with us today on Healthy by Choice. Appreciate your words of wisdom. You too. Thanks again. And listener, until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Dr. Dean Ornish inviting you to be healthy by choice. Goodbye, everyone. If you'd like more information about Healthy by Choice, call Three Angels Broadcasting Network at 618-627-4651. You can also email us through our website at 3abn.org. 